You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Kevin Hermaning was in a cell in what had been the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. He was a captive, and he hadn't been getting along with the guards very well. In fact, he had been put in solitary confinement after he tried to escape. And he hadn't behaved well when an international minister arrived, and the guards knew it. So when he got a summons from the guard to come to a conference room, he and his hostage roommate looked at each other. Maybe this is it. The Iranians who took over the U.S. Embassy in Tehran in 1979 did not treat the hostages well. They would wake Americans in the middle of the night, place an unloaded gun to their heads, and then click the trigger. Hostages were beaten. One had three of his teeth broken off at the gum line. This was the same situation that Hermaning was in. And then they came to my room one day and said, we have a surprise for you. I was actually fearful of what that surprise might be. And then they put me in a room with dozens of TV cameras. Kevin, your mom is here. Kevin Hermaning was a Marine, and he was on his way to dinner, the mess hall, in 1978, when he saw a giant banner inviting him. Learn more about the Marine Security Guard program. It featured cutouts of Marines in their uniforms, standing in front of the Eiffel Tower, or the Taj Mahal, the Great Wall of China. And initially, he joins and is assigned to West Germany, and it's pretty cool. Thinking about skiing at the Alps and everything like that, he's transferred, and his assignment becomes Iran. He's there a few months. It's not terrible in the beginning. Starts to study Farsi, you know, walks the streets of Tehran, does shopping. But then... On a rainy Sunday morning, Hermaning is the main embassy guard, and he sees that there's a demonstration at the front gate. It's the biggest group of people that he had ever seen. I made a beeline for the front door, November 4th, 1979. Looking out into the front grounds, I saw hundreds of Iranians already gathering, and thousands more smashing through and eventually just opening the front gate. We used tear gas to try to delay them, and we did, but eventually... Hermaning, and 51 others, initially 66 Americans, then 52, they would spend 440 days as prisoners during the Iran hostage crisis. When the guard said, Kevin, your mom is here, he didn't believe them at first. But the only thing that countered those thoughts in Kevin's mind, because these guys were tricksters, they engaged in all kinds of psychological torture, they told another one of the hostages, like, your family we're going to kill them, even though they were safely in the United States. Who knew what these people were capable of? The only thoughts that countered 
Those negative thoughts in Kevin's mind were two things. One, the guards had recently been surprisingly nice to him. Even after he misbehaved with the international minister, didn't give the answers that they wanted. Maybe uh, they got some pushback from the clerics, which was kind of going on during this time. And also, Kevin knew his mom. When hostages are taken, when terrorism is committed, the very idea that the terrorists have is to disrupt, to throw off governments, to get them not thinking about what they want to think about, but think about their agenda. It's the most horrible thing. Innocents are involved. I mean, to think governments can snap their fingers and have all the right answers. And that's exactly what happens in 79 and 80. You just did not take U.S. embassies around the world. And... As we discussed in a previous episode, Carter 1981, the Carter administration was divided. When I recorded that episode, I had no idea that there would be a high-profile event that would occur involving hostage-taking, and it happens sometimes. I, I do these episodes, and instead of following events, sometimes I'll let events follow me, because it happens. I mean, I did uh, histories like that. It applies to a lot of situations that can happen. I did an episode in 2017 on the Great Influenza. 1919. And that was three years before COVID. Good thing too, because we couldn't book Laura Spinney. She was too busy during that time. We talked about masking and lockdowns and all of that. So here, I had just come off doing a three-part episode on Carter. And there's a lot, especially in the last episode, about hostage taking and negotiations. I digress a bit here. The American choice in 1979-1980 is not so different from the Israeli policy choices right now. There is enormous publicity around the hostage families at this time. The difference within the administration is manifested in Cyrus Vance, the Secretary of State, and Zygbig uh, Brzezinski, I always butcher his name, Vance's Kennedy man, LBJ man, a decent fellow, was there in 68 for the Paris peace talks. He's a negotiator. And also, The hostages are the State Department employees, his people, his charge. Brzezinski prioritized national interest and world stature. It's not like he didn't want the hostages safe return, but paramount importance to him is national honor and interest. That's going to drive everything else, or else they're just going to take all the embassies around the world. Guess what? During this time, little reported, we don't talk about it much anymore, But in late 79, they also tried to take, the terrorists tried to take the U.S. Embassy in Pakistan. And in that question of hostage families as priority or military action as priority, ignoring the hostages, putting the national interest over their lives, the fact that they aren't just Carter's constituents and American citizens, but they are Carter's employees does have an influence here. Vance does as well. Vance takes Carter early on to some of the meetings that he's having with the hostages' families after the hostage-taking. Opinion among families was not unilateral. Some were flattered. Others were horrified. Why aren't you paying ransom? Why did you let the Shah in? Barbara Rosen, the wife of hostage Barry Rosen, said, If you use guns, remember, think of Barry. Now, Barbara Tim, uh, formerly Barbara Hermanning, is one of these critical people. He doesn't like what the State Department is doing, how they're handling the families, how they're kind of trying to muzzle them. There's a couple of hostage families that want to write to the Iranians. The State Department 
says don't do that. Tim's main argument, which still makes a lot of sense today, and critique of the Carter administration is, okay, I don't even have a problem with you letting the Shah of Iran in, even though all these people in revolutionary Iran hate him now. But why don't you bring our staff back before you did that? She thinks the rest of the hostage families are way too compliant. Some of them, she thinks, are selling out their hostages for, you know, a few meetings in Washington and and all of that. Tired of the back and forth, not believing for a second that they're going to do anything. She gets a lawyer. The lawyer is one that has connections in Iran and knows this part of the world well. From the New York Times... 1980, five months after the eldest of her five children was taken hostage at the United States Embassy in Tehran, Barbara Tim defied the President of the United States and flew to Tehran. Mrs. Tim is angry, said the New York Times. Her son totally lost 15 months of his life because of what she views as the ineptitude of President Carter and the United States government. I have never, not for one second, been able to accept what has taken place. I had no qualms over allowing the Shah to our country, but why were our people not brought home first, particularly since American officials in Tehran warned Washington of Iranian reprisals? I will not be part of a group that thinks the thing to do is to go around the country tying yellow ribbons to trees. Believe it or not, while 52 Americans are held in the U.S. Embassy and other places in Tehran, there are hundreds of American in in, in Iran, in Tehran, in 1980, while these events are going on. Human rights activists, lawyers, and lots of media. Ostensibly, because there's no way you could take their word for it with the way that they were behaving, but ostensibly, the only interest of the Iran Revolutionary Guard is in the State Department personnel who they say are spies. So the lawyer says, you know, and the lawyer, Barbara says, I want to go there. So it's April 15th, Barbara flies from Virginia to Syria. It's only the second time that she's flown in an airplane, but nothing's going to stop her. Time Magazine said back in Oak Creek, where Mrs. Tim is on leave for her job as a switchboard operator at an ironworks foundry, some townspeople consider her a traitor for going off to Iran against the administration's wishes. Others contend that she had, at least for a moment, eased the tensions by personalizing the situation. Said her sister, she's not a traitor, and she's not a Joan of Arc. She's just a mother who wants to see her son. She does start to get nervous when they reach Damascus, Syria, and anyone who she said was normal-looking got off the plane. So it seemed she was headed to a place that regards the United States as the great Satan, and it showed. They do land in Tehran. As Mark Bowden wrote, no one could ignore this story, a mom of one of the hostages coming to Iran from Wisconsin, not even revolutionary zealots. There is a mass of Iranian and international reporters at the airport. They mob her, she makes a brief statement, but then they're able to get into the car. I want you to go to the embassy, she says immediately. Her lawyer says, that's not a good idea right now. That's where he is. That's where I want to go. They drive past the embassy. Mrs. Tim says, that's where he is, and breaks down. It was just a drive-by, but later that night, they will return. She and her husband, her her new husband, Mrs. Mr. Tim, and the lawyer. 
The guards resist, but they end up getting Nilofar Ebtekar, also known as Mary. She's an Iranian that has lived in Philadelphia. She's one of the students now. There are cameras. She speaks to Barbara as if it's all kind of a show. So you are here to see evidence of the CIA, the great Satan, the spying that's going on. Barbara had heard this all before. She had started listening late at night to the radio programs coming from Tehran, the news coming, the statements of the Iranian Revolutionary Council. She knew it all. She knew all the propaganda. And Barbara says, you are holding my son. She gets more propaganda back. We're holding spies, CIA, blah, blah. I am not part of that, Barbara says. She cries. And then she screams at her. You, you are not a mother. How would you act? She walks away, figuring this is it. But after a few minutes, her husband has gone over, talked to the woman, talked to some of the guards, and then her husband comes back. Barbara, she wants to talk to you. Nilofar says, if you want to see your boy, you will have to get a permit. Her lawyer arranges a meeting with the foreign minister, and they do get that permit. Later that night, they're back, and Nilofar receives it. Return tomorrow, she says. But she is not allowed to simply return there. The next day, she's informed that three students will be sent to her hotel. You need to come with us. You cannot bring your lawyer. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money, and not just your own. 
To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. This frightens Barbara. Throughout this all, the lawyer is the one that she trusts. The only reason she's setting foot in the country of Iran is this lawyer. She goes with the three students. She's asked to first walk along the graves of a cemetery. The cameras are rolling. She's told, these are the victims of the great Satan. We are friends of the American people, but not of their government. We must ask the great Satan, in this case they're referring to the Shah, the previous ruler of Iran, to return to us. Congress should investigate what has been done here with Iran. Barbara insists, I'm not involved in politics. She's still not at the embassy. She's tired, jet lag from the plane, hasn't slept all night. They are now questioned, her and her husband. Where were you born? Did Washington put you up to this? What groups do you belong to? Jesus, she's thinking. Would they even get to go to the embassy? Do you work for the government? No, no, no. I just want to see my son. They then put in front of her statements critical of the United States government and ask her to sign. She refuses. I knew they had to test me, Mrs. Tim recalled later. They wanted to feel me out. On the ride back from the cemetery, the group had lunch at the local Kentucky Fried Chicken. The Tims did not even have a chance to collect their presents for Kevin, including family pictures and an Easter egg decorated by the younger children. She is then blindfolded. Somehow she feels, though, she is being led back to the embassy. Maybe similar sounds. Barbara's husband is with her for the ride, but then when they get there, only she is allowed to go in. She's led down a corridor by what she knows are armed men and Nilofar. I was more scared than I had ever been in my life, Barbara said. She began to doubt that she would be taken to her son at all. She even thought, perhaps I'm the next hostage, number 53, but she's brought into her room. There, with a long mop of hair, is her son. He's amazed. As they embrace, he tells her, be careful. Everything's bugged. Kevin said, I immediately began to fear for her life, and I couldn't imagine what she was doing there and how she got in. And you know, it's something that unless you're a parent, and I wasn't at the time, I am now, it's very difficult to understand what would compel somebody to do that. And yet, she had to do what her heart told her to do. I'm proud of her for the sacrifice. Abtekar is is there and regulates the conversation. For instance, Barbara's asked allowed to ask her son Kevin about home, you know, to tell him about home life. But if she asks about what he's doing there, like what room they're keeping him in, even how he's treated, Nilofar says to Kevin, you cannot answer that. We spent about 18 to 20 minutes together, Kevin said, talking basically about things from home, nothing about politics, nothing about negotiations that might be taking place. Here's from Time Magazine. Mrs. Tim had no idea she would even be admitted to Iran, let alone gain access to the embassy. She and her husband obtained 15-day visas from the Iranian embassy in Paris and flew to Tehran. He wanted to know about grandma and grandpa, Mrs. Tim said at a press conference after the meeting. He wanted to know whether... 
Judy was still going with Rick, his sister. Thought that was fantastic that that still was happening. He asked about his hometown girlfriend, Donna. He was overjoyed to hear about the Oak Creek basketball team winning the state championship. They sat on the couch holding hands. Iranian television covered the event. Kevin, for their, his part, told Barbara, I have become stronger and deeper in my beliefs, particularly Catholicism. But even the innocent stuff transmits information. For instance, Barbara tells her son, Bud Sealing, who owns the Milwaukee Brewers, is going to let you throw out the first ball when you get home. See, some of the hostages were told nobody cares about them. Carter doesn't care. They want to punish Iran and they don't care about you. Barbara's happy to at least see her son, but doesn't like her son's commitment. Condition. He's thin. He's got rashes. She hears the voice. Time is up. Before Barbara is allowed to leave, her and her husband are asked to watch a video on the executed victims of the Shah. They then give them food. Barbara really doesn't want to eat. Even this is a propaganda move. This is what your son is eating every day, they said. Kevin will be released with the other hostages January 20th, 1981, just as Carter is leaving office and um, really right after Reagan takes office. Many political observers think that an attack on Iran would have re-elected Carter. Carter knew that the hostages and thousands of civilians would be killed if that happened. He made that choice. Hostages over military or national security concerns. Although, I want to be clear, and he, you know, would be clear, that isn't just a black or white choice either. There were certain steps. For instance, at um, Rezinsky's request... Carter made sure if one hostage is harmed, we go in. So there were certain threats made. Carter's going to regret, regret certain things, like not being more forceful, steps he could have taken before, different ways they could have handled the Shah situation. He is not going to regret that he prioritized the hostages' lives. None of this is a editorial comment that that choice is necessarily right. Um, this is how Hermaning feels. Since the United States did not respond with military action, our nation was seen by Iran and most other nations, especially in the Middle East, as a paper tiger. Negotiation is very important, but it requires two honest brokers. Iran has never been one and isn't now. And so it makes our government look ridiculous. That's not a majority opinion, though. I mean, Barry Rosen, who is a spokesperson for the State Department uh, there, met with hostage takers in Paris years later. Uh, has been pushing peace. And most of the other hostages and their families are somewhere in between the two in terms of what priority to make. There's one more interesting note uh, that Kevin Hermaning had said to reporters later in recounting his story is that he got a chance to meet some people on the Operation Eagle Claw Desert One rescue team. The first thing that Hermaning will always say is, you can give me a medal. These guys, especially the ones that, that died trying to rescue me, those are the real heroes. And when 40 years passed, he gets to meet some of the people on the rescue team. I looked right in their eyes. They had lived for 40 years with the belief that they failed, that what they did meant nothing. I looked right in their eyes and I said to them, once we learned that you had tried to get us out, that's what gave us hope for the last eight and a half months of captivity. 
They didn't know that we had come to believe and learned once we were told that there was a rescue attempt. Though it failed in securing our freedom, it would succeed in morale. I want to thank you for listening. Um, the website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. And uh, we have a Patreon there. Uh, would appreciate any support. Another way you can support us is just by telling people about it. Lately seeing a few references on Reddit. Various Reddit threads or people asking about pol- podcasts to listen to. That's a great way to shout out about My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Spread the word. That's how we get new listeners who then, hey, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, a niche topic, politics and history. Thanks for listening.